My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. I'm Joe Devine, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Uh, I was joined today by Seb Stafford-Bloor. This episode is split into two halves. In part one, we discussed Alexis Sanchez at Arsenal, off the back of a recent article that Seb wrote for umaxit.com. Part two is a new segment that we'll be introducing into the show whenever Seb makes an appearance. Uh, Seb is the sub-editor of the Umaxit editorial site, so in the second part... We briefly discussed the top five performing articles of last week, so stick around for that. Apologies in advance for some of the sound quality on this episode. We encountered a bit of an issue during recording, which was unfortunately uneditable. Um, so there's a little bit of clicking now and then. Sorry about that. We know how important it is to listeners that the audio quality is top-notch, so we will be working on that to ensure that it doesn't become a regularity. It is totally listenable, though, and my hope is that you will forget all about it and enjoy the show. So thank you for downloading. Keep commenting, rating and reviewing us. It really helps us reach new people. And uh, away we go. Seb, last week you wrote an article about Alexis Sanchez titled Alexis Sanchez Needs to Emerge from His Sulky Fog. Um, In it, you speak of his seeming determination to let everyone know that he'd rather be somewhere else, um, of his performances betrayed by visible exasperation and flailing arms, and you describe him as embittered by the deadline day fiasco which left him marooned between Arsenal and Manchester City. Um, it's fairly damning in parts, and perhaps not unfairly so, but I wondered if you could explain why you you feel as strongly as the article suggests that you do. Uh, well, I, I think partly it's because, well, I, I think I speak for most people when I say that we, we've we've all grown a little bit tired of this kind of act, not from Alexis Sanchez specifically, but just, you know, players, um, you know, players posturing and becoming petulant as a result of not getting what they want. Um, I think in Sanchez's case, like it's, um, it's, it's understandable initially for a player to be disappointed by the collapse of that kind of move, because I think we can, can assume that if he had moved to Manchester City, that would have come with a, a pretty hefty pay rise. Um, however, it has now been more than a month, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just I think there has to be a realization point with players where they think, well, okay, that that didn't happen, but then I'm still under contract with this club. I am still a teammate with of, of this group of players, um, and I still owe a certain level of commitment to a particular group of fans. Um, Sanchez is entitled to his disappointment, but I think the way that's manifesting is. Not problematic, but irritating because I think if you if you watch him now, every every time a, a teammate doesn't find him with the pass that he wants, or you know if a if a uh, if a, a teammate doesn't perfectly control one of his own crossfield passes or his own sort of a flick or a back heel, there's this sort of there's this demonstrative show of um, annoyance, which mm. seems to be. I, this may be terribly unfair, but to me, it seems to be. Uh, designed for the cameras um yeah and so i i, I was watching um arsenal's game on sunday uh, against brighton and obviously um 
he uh, he created the second goal, though, a nice little backflick to Alex Awobi. And I was looking back over that, and I, I was watching Sanchez and the build-up to that and Awobi's movement. And um, at a guess, I, I would say that there is no way that, I, that he was aware of where Alex Awobi was. And also, if you watch that, you see Aaron Ramsey, who is in a, he's in a brilliant shooting position. He's on the edge of the box, uh, right in the center of the goal, uh, and in a prime position just to receive a layoff from Sanchez for a, you know, a shot either side of the goalkeeper. Ramsey mm. probably scores. Ramsey's, you know, he has some, um, he has some flaws as a player, but he is a good finisher. Um, and I just thought, you know, the back heel, and then, and then you also, you, you, you saw Sanchez's reaction after Awobi scored. Awobi, you know, a developing player, a nice goal. Um, I think he actually scored on, on Nigeria's Independence Day, um, mm. which is, a, you know, a nice little bit of personal symmetry for him. And uh, obviously he was delighted. Uh, three points confirmed for Arsenal. And Sanchez kind of just walks off by himself. And I don't know, I just, eventually the act's got to stop um, because he he's behaving as if he's surrounded by, you know, uh, the, as if he's mm. Wilfred Zaha in the Crystal Palace team. Whereas in reality, Arsenal, I, I, I know they had a really bad day out at Anfield, but they've subsequently won four games in a row. They haven't conceded a goal in the process. They're, a point, they're, they're level on points at Chelsea. They're a point behind Tottenham. Yeah, they're, they're not a title favourite. Of course, I, I, I think all, all of those roads um, pass through Manchester uh, in terms of mm-hmm. the uh, Premier League this year. Fine. Um, but Arsenal are a very competitive team. And... I just think, look, I I understand his contract is running out and that he will leave in the summer almost certainly. uh, And he's entitled to have his, um, to to shop himself out on the free agent market. But until then, what is the the harm in just falling back into the the team structure a little bit? That's true, because you would assume that if, um, you know, let's say he had three years left on, on his contract, that this sort of jostling might, you know, it, it, it's it's not pleasant, but you could argue from the player's point of view in some cases that it might be necessary, you know, to cause nuisance enough that the club d- decide to let you go in, in however many months' time. But, I mean, if his contract is coming to an end and he can leave anyway, it doesn't seem, you know, he's, he's, he's where he is now. There's no changing that. So it seems like a strange attitude to choose to have. Whether whether it's just a kind of prolonged disappointment, and you know, I, I you know from, I'm sure your own life that it's sometimes it's, it's difficult to carry on as as normal if you're particularly disappointed about something, you know, to not let it show. How 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 sure are you that it's designed? Not at all. It's a complete gas. Uh, nobody can know that other than Sanchez himself. But it's just either it's uh, unintentional petulance. Or it's a kind of it's an act, but either way, I'm not sure either of those are particularly palatable. I also the one, one other thing, uh, this free agent stuff. I mean, okay, so his, his contract will expire at Arsenal in I think June, um, and I, I know Manchester City bid for him in the summer, but when next summer arrives um, and he is, you know, a little bit closer to thirty, where, where does Alexis Sanchez believe he's going to go? Mm. I mean, uh, also look, he, he may well be seen without that without a transfer fee to be paid he may well be seen as a very good option for a you know a big english club but where is he going to go that he's going to start or where does he go where he's afforded the same status he's not going to manchester united because they will have no need for him um manchester united incidentally are are being linked with meza ozil so that would be very strange if they were to take 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 both players on a free transfer manchester city look i I could understand that they could certainly afford to 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 sign him on a free transfer or without um Mm. there aren't many financial um uh restrictions there but then if you look at that team as it is um in its current form with 
you know, our, our front obviously you've got Jesus and uh, Sergio Aguero, but also, you know, that he, Kevin De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva, David Silva, Leroy Sane, Raheem Sterling. Look, you there may well be a place in that squad, but I at this stage of his career, if you were Pep Guardiola, would you probably want to sort of mm. dance with the one that brung you? Well, also you could you know you could argue that there there would be a place in that squad for the Alexis Sanchez of two years ago, who was arguably the best player in the league, you know, and and the Alexis Sanchez of a particular level of um, desire, I think. And you you mentioned in the article, it's not all negative, you know, you know how incredible he's been for Arsenal in the past because arriving sort of alongside Meza Ozil he has the the talent but also he's a, he's a team player and he's you know you you really saw that desire from him um for a couple of seasons it was ago. one of the most likable parts of his game Joe because you yeah. it's so rare to see a player of that ability with that level of application marrying those two attributes is incredibly seductive for a, for a neutral mm-hmm. to watch and there might be a place in any Premier League team for that player but he's not currently that player and that's that's the crux of the argument I, I, I think that if you're in his situation and you are hankering after a move to um, a truly elite level club I mean of course sort of you know we've got a factor in the Bayern Munich and Juventus he's not going to go to Real Madrid yeah. or Barcelona but um Surely it serves everyone's interest, I mean, Arsenal to have a player of his ability and his dedication, but also Alexis Sanchez's own interest to, 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 to if, if he was to return to that kind of level um, and uh, regain what was previously a flawless attitude, um, surely your chances of getting the move that you so obviously want increase greatly. Can you imagine a, a, a Champions League contender sanctioning a, you know, a, a £300,000 a week contract for this version of Alexis Sanchez? Probably not. It's you know in a way it's a slightly more extreme situation to to refer to, but I think it was one of the one of the things that turned some clubs off. Saida Berahino, you know that he was intent to move, but then the attitude that that he showed to the club that he was currently at, I think, probably turned turned some of his suitors off a little bit. You know, yeah, well, I, I think it's certainly created a red flag or two, um, and there are other things about Saida Berahino that we can't mention legally. Um, but yes, I say the genesis of his kind of current decline was was this this kind of protracted sulk after being denied a move to Tottenham. Um, instantly, a move which it seems now wouldn't have suited anyone any, him anyway because maybe he's yeah. he's not quite at that level as a player. Um, I think he's he uh, we certainly uh, projected him to, to 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 go a lot further than he currently has. Mm. Well, I wanted to mention briefly, uh, well, briefly talk about player power. Because uh, I think in, in in the modern game, you know, the advent of a player uh, exercising their player power in the hopes of moving between clubs is fairly common. And we can look back to, to 1995's Bosman ruling to explain that shift in the power balance. Um, I just wanted to mention that I thought it was interesting. When I was planning for the podcast, I, I read an article by, by Harry Redknapp, um, of all people, in The Telegraph, in which he recalls being a West Ham manager at the time that the ruling was introduced. And he said that every chairman believed that the ruling would bring an end to transfer fees completely and that there'd be 50 or 60 top players who were free every summer and who were heading to the clubs playing the highest wages. So I suppose that's half true. Um, but he also mentioned that the expectation that that was going to be the case was the only reason that West Ham let Rio Ferdinand go to Leeds United. The chairman thought that he'd be leaving in a couple of years anyway. Uh, and that the face of football was going to change. So, yeah, it's, it's the only reason they let Ferdinand go, which I thought I'd never heard before, and I thought uh, <laughs> it was quite interesting. I wondered maybe whether Harry Redknapp was 
writing that one in so that he can alleviate himself of the guilt of, of letting him go. I Look, I, I think with Harry Redknapp, when he starts talking about things that happened a couple of decades ago, you always have to kind of, you probably want to look up a few details. In that case, he's probably right. I mean, I think Rhea Ferdinand, mm. it became obvious pretty quickly that his future was not going to be at West Ham and that, sure. yes, had his contract run down, he would not have renewed it. Um, interesting that you bring it up because actually uh, I was at... Um, I was at the, the Emirates Cup in pre-season and it's something that Arsene Wenger said in his press conference after one of the after the first day. He was talking about, obviously, in reference to Ozil and Sanchez's contractual situations, he said that he expects that to become the norm because the wages on offer to free agents are of that calibre are, yeah. are so enormous that it's um, that it suits them. I mean, obviously, in certain situations, players are going to want to, to make a move you know, if they're, they're within a five-year contract, for instance. I think that the most likely change is probably not that um, probably not that uh, that all top players will start letting their contracts run down. I think that the, the trend will be it for... more often. It might happen more often, but as a result of players signing shorter-term contracts. Uh, I mean, for, for players in lower leagues, obviously a five-year deal is, is wonderful security. But for a, mm. you know, a player who is always going to be wanted somewhere... Um, why would you sign for five years anywhere? Why do you think it would, it's taken so long to have that effect? Because, I mean, you know, after the ruling was passed, I think it was pretty clear pretty quickly what was going to happen in terms of the, the shift from, you know, club pla- club power to, to player power. But if, if this was going to be the case, and if all the chairmen at the time were saying, well, you know, some of the top players will, will you know, make their contracts shorter or run them down and it's in their benefit. Why do you think it's taken so long for us to get to that point? I, I don't know. I think there's two sides of this. I think that, um, you know, if you if you were a club, then you, you would obviously go into that kind of situation with your eyes open. So if a player said, well, no, I, you know, I want a two-year contract, in response, a club could say, well, no, if you sign for X amount of years more, then we will give you an extra 20 grand a week. You know, I, 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 it's hard without without a legal background or without knowledge, proper knowledge of a negotiating situation. It, it's very hard to say, but I, you know, it's not a, it's not a one sided scenario. Um, well, in that case, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, Arsenal uh, specifically, um, because I I think you know you sort of said in the article you you've referenced it already here. Um, in not so many words, you observe that Arsenal maybe aren't in the dire straits that. Um, Perhaps the perhaps the media or, or certain aspects of the public would like to make out that they are, um, and you know they might not be a front runner for the league, but they're hardly toiling. I suppose you could say. I mean, that you, you say they're on the same points as Chelsea. They're one point behind Tottenham. I just wonder, generally speaking, what do you make of the team? Uh, ooh, it's a hard question. I, I, I think Arsenal certainly have limitations. I mean, I, look, I, some of the traditional criticisms of them uh, still remain true. I think they, they have some problems in defence, um, not least with the combination of defenders that they're, they're using. Um, I, I don't yet really know how good a player Rob Holding is, for instance. I think he's a yeah. good player. I don't know quite whether his long-term future is at the top of the Premier League. Um, I, again, central midfield. Granite Xhaka has started the season quite well. Um, I I think still, even though he's he's obviously an aging player now, I I, I think um, Santi Cazorla remains a, a a big miss for them um, mm. because they don't really have much creativity from the middle of the pitch without him. Well, I think also yeah, seven injuries in the last or seven seven surgeries in the last twelve months. Yeah, also he's a player approaching the end of his career, so you you mm. could quite easily say that Arsenal have been a little bit negligent in not trying to replace him. Um, I think in Alex Wobey, they have a very good player in the making. Um, uh, Lacazette is a, I wouldn't 
call him an outstanding goal scorer, but he's a very good one. Uh, he's certainly an improvement on what they had before. And as a result of him joining, they have a very nice backup option in Olivier Giroud. Yeah. Uh, you know, if um, if Sanchez can um, be sort of brought back inside the, the, the ropes, he's obviously a huge asset. If Meza Ozil's form can return to, to its best, again, big asset. Um, Kalasinic is a... I don't know if he's a very good player, but he's certainly a very useful one and uh, certainly better one than what they had. And, you know, of course, they have Peter Jack and goal. So uh, they're, they're not they're not a favourite. They are they do not match up either player for player or, or you know, uh, squad-wise with either Manchester club. I'd say that Tottenham is still superior to them. Uh, I'd say Chelsea, at their best, are still superior. But, look, it's a... There's no reason at the moment. I, I, I think they are actually a more balanced team than Liverpool, despite what happened a few weeks ago. So the, the, the requalifying from the Champions League is definitely in play, um, and it's certainly not a. I, 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 I don't. I don't really buy the idea that sort of that Arsenal have suddenly just because they've dropped out of the top four for one season, they've suddenly become Everton. Well, what would what would you do about uh, the manager situation? Well, with Wenger, yeah. Uh, well, I, it's not so much what I would do now; it's probably what I would have done. Um, I think. Um, I think it was. It was a. Uh, a strange decision on the basis that um, I personally, if I was a member of the Arsenal board, I would have probably lobbied for Thomas Tuchel because I think that um, uh, he's a, a very good fit for the type of player they have there and a very interesting coach, a young coach. Um, and I, I, I think he would have been the, the sort of the, the rejuvenating factor that Wenger no longer is, or is, Wenger is no longer able to be. Just as not a criticism of Wenger, it's just a product of someone being there for a very long time. And also, the, the the key to Arsenal's succession is not to to to, to Wenger's succession is not just getting rid of him. It's allowing him to leave. It's important that he he leaves with a bit of grace, of course, but it's important that he leaves with a person to replace him, not just leave for the sake of it. And you know, because that that's mm. always the key. You know, there's no point in changing a manager unless you have someone that can come in and do things better. And I think that um, this summer would have been a good chance to do that, um, and it hasn't been taken. One final thing uh, to satisfy my own curiosity. Um, Mesut Ozil to Manchester United is, is a rumour, and I get rumour and speculations, not, ne- not necessarily something that we'd normally uh, cover, but it just strikes me as a very um, odd... I'd, well, it, just, it just seems very odd to me. I don't quite understand uh, how, this would, how this would work or why Mourinho would be interested. You say plausible. Um, can you... Can you well, from a Mourinho perspective, it makes a lot of sense because obviously uh, Ozil was very successful under Mourinho at Real Madrid. It probably, I'd argue, that was the most successful part of his career. Um, but I mean, hasn't this season like Mkhitaryan has been, you know, outstanding? Probably, probably Manchester United's best player in, in parts of the season. So I'm, I'm a bit confused as to where Mourinho might uh, envisage uh, Ozil playing. Well, I, I think that the first thing with a club like Manchester United is you remember that. Not every player they, they they sign necessarily has to fit into a obviously fit into a starting eleven. Um, I think the benefit for a club like that is that um, there are no real restrictions on finance. They they have a blank check for every player in the world. So you could bring in a Meza Özil, and you could quite easily make the case that there is um, there is enough contrast between Mkhitaryan and Özil for you know for, for for both to make sense within a squad situation. How they fit into a starting eleven, I don't know. But then. That's a, a question which really exists with Manchester United. How do you fit Rashford, Lukaku, and Martial into the same first eleven? Well, you d- I mean that you don't. But I think what, what what would be concerning to supporters, I think, is that, that there seems to be 
you know, I think Mourinho's done an excellent job in 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 curating a sort of delicate balance uh, with the squad at the moment. And I suppose you get to the point where you worry about you know big big names coming in and displacing that. I think one of the things that the team really has going for it this season is uh, their their cohesiveness and their you know collective mentality is starkly different from from what it was last season and any season since Ferguson left I think that's been Mourinho's biggest achievement so I suppose you know the worry for supporters would be not changing that I would take umbrage with that I because I I think look I Mourinho has done quite a good job over the summer and Manchester United are a, a very dangerous looking side but I, I, I wouldn't characterize I would I'd characterize that more as the result of spending a lot of money um in that he has a lot of extremely talented attacking players, okay. uh, a very gifted midfield, and so the I, I understand the, the 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 hesitation with Özil, and yeah, what does that actually make sense? You've already got a sort of a dainty left-footed playmaker in, in Juan Mata there, who's a you know an excellent player. Mm-hmm. What's the need for Özil? Well, you know, in the same way that what's the need for what what was really the need for Mkhitaryan? What, what was the need for for Matic? You don't know. What that? What else? That's going to enable him to do, you know, in, in terms of sort of, okay, does it allow? First thing, it obviously allows a degree of rotation. Uh, what kind of combinations can you you carve out of um, out of Merzel's presence in the team? If that makes sense, you know, it's, it's yeah. a it, these are jigsaw pieces. Um, you know, and we could probably talk about this forever, actually. But um, yeah, I, I, and the, the, the accumulation of, of, of big players by big clubs. I, I, look, I, I understand all the concerns they write themselves, but um, yeah, no, I, 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 it wouldn't surprise me whatsoever, really. Okay, in the second part of today's podcast, we're going to uh, go through and discuss the uh, the five top performing articles on umaxit.com from the last week. Uh, so what follows is theoretically what most people were interested in hearing about, therefore statistically likely to be of interest to at least some of you. Uh, in at number one, and we're going to do this the opposite way because I don't feel like building towards number one is going to create any sort of <laughs> Okay. Doesn't you know we're not the UK top four? No, we're not. Uh, not that there's any tension in that anymore. Uh, but in a number one is is Phil Costa uh, on Arsenal's Alex Iwobi, who we already uh, mentioned. That's nice. Uh, Phil writes that although the football world has moved away from the primacy of the dribbler, most of the Premier League's top clubs still have multiple players who could be described as specialists in that role, except Arsenal. Uh, however, and I quote, there isn't a happier man. Then Arsene Wenger, when looking back on the decision not to sell, you guessed it, Alex Iwobi. Seb, what are your thoughts on the youngster? You already sort of gave us a little sentence, but maybe you can give us a second. Yeah, I really like Iwobi. I, I, um, it's a funny one. He's, he's someone that doesn't get spoken about a lot. Um, I mean, he's, uh, he's, it's not just that he's talented, and Phil's absolutely right, he's, he's excellent on the ball, but he has... Um, he has so much to his game in terms of his movement and his ability to finish. I know that he's he, he still has a few flaws and he's a, still an imperfect player. But, you know, as opposed to... I, I, the player I always compare him to favourably is Theo Walcott because they typically occupy the same position on the field now. And I think, obviously, Arsenal fans have got used to seeing what Walcott does and, more importantly, what Walcott doesn't do in that his 
ability really stretches to being quick, uh, you know, finishing well in good positions, but not really contributing much. He's not someone, for instance, who's particularly good in intricate positions around the penalty box. He's a very, very predictable player, not least because um, his range of movement is, you know, it's, uh, it's been the same for a decade, really. Mm. Um, Wavy, I see, is someone that uh, theoretically can occupy all around the, the, the penalty box from, from both sides of the pitch. Um, his delivery, uh, not that reliable, um, but he's, he's interesting because he's unpredictable. I mean, every time, I, every time I've seen him live, I've seen something different from him, if that makes sense. It's a little bit pretentious, I, I understand, but um, there's a little bit, of the, there's, there's something in his game which I haven't seen before, and that, that, that's a fascinating quality, not least because, um, firstly, obviously, because of what it allows a player to do within that particular game, but also because it allows you to imagine uh, what he might be in the future with a little bit more refinement. Um, and he's also a player that, that seems to mould himself around different players and aside. So, you know, that kind of footballer um, is, is, is a great guy to have around because no matter what you bring into the club, he, he seems smart enough um, with, you know, brain-wise, I guess, um, to adjust to the trades. Brain-wise, then. Brain-wise, yeah. It, it is early. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't had a um, an awful lot of coffee this morning, so maybe, maybe. I tell you what, if you if you can edit in a slightly more erudite description, that that'd be lovely. <laughs> I think actually, I think that's probably probably quite good. Brain-wise, let's go with it. But uh, you, you know what I'm getting at. He's he's a kind of yeah. he's soft clay as a player, um, which is which is yeah. which is great to have. You, you can kind of push him into any kind of position, and and uh, I mean not quite yet but in a few years you could probably feel safe to be safe that he's gonna guarantee you a certain level of production and a certain level of style he's very watchable mm, absolutely and yeah also i think he's he's pretty smart brain wise um at, at number two uh this one is uh, quite astonishing still in the top five after a month uh, a month, month after publication this is uh this one's the rock around the clock of the umaxit domain uh, which incidentally spent 54 weeks at the UK top forty, not the longest ever. Do you want to take a little guess? I did some research. Do you want to guess what was uh, the the longest stay in the top forty, uh, the UK top forty of all time? For a single or an album? Uh, single singles. Uh, is it wet, wet, wet? It's no, it's not wet. It's it's Frank Sinatra and My Way. Uh, okay, seventy four weeks. Okay, I, I I think Love Is All Around was. I think that might hold the record for the, for the longest number one. That was there for Maybe, really yeah. long. Or actually, Brian Adams, he was there too for a long time in the mm. very early 90s. Quite astounding. I mean, back in, back in the day, that equaled a lot of money. Did indeed. Um, it did. So, uh, this one though, Stephen Tudor uh, questions why Manchester United always get easy Champions League draws. Uh, so, Seb, do you, do you want to talk us through this one? Yeah, well, first of all, um, this, this has been popular because I think what happened is a lot of people saw the headline, got angry, didn't read it and went to leave angry comments. Um, mm. Because uh, Stephen um, explored the various draws Manchester United have, have had, group stage draws they've had in the Champions League Um since the the competition um, was in its modern form, and uh, he look, I, it sounds very conspiratorial, um, but he he actually has a point. Certainly, if you if you compare the kind of and you know seeding aside, if you compare the kind of teams that Manchester United have, have faced in the group stage um, each year, it's um, uh, Stephen actually it's, it's worth reading. And, and don't just go off my description. He actually assigns a kind of a um, an arbitrary value 
to the standard of teams that they've been drawn against. So Manchester United, of all the kind of the what we would um, term European superpowers, have by far the lowest. And I think it's a very it's, fair it's value. It's a sensible point system. Yeah, it is. I, I think it is. It's not like um, uh, Stephen is a Manchester City fan, but it's not laced with tribalism. And I understand why people got angry because you know football fans sometimes can't be expected to read actual articles. You know, um, you know, it might take all of five minutes, um, but. I think it's worth reading. And I, he doesn't draw any sort of um, outlandish conclusions. He doesn't make any accusations. And he mentions, of course, that, uh, you know, David Gill's role at UEFA, um, which is, yeah. sorry, but it is fair. Um, uh, but he doesn't sort of, he doesn't accuse uh, the Champions League of being a Manchester United favoured carve-up or anything like that. It's just, um, it's just curious. It's, um, it, 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 I think... What what I found interesting from it uh, was he he draws a, a comparison uh, to to anything happening outside the football world. He said that, for example, if you were to take a situation like this over uh, you know a twenty year period, if there were a finance company that was you know somehow seemingly and you know potentially totally um, coincidentally massively benefiting from something every year in a way that their rivals weren't. You would investigate that because you would, you know, you'd be curious as to what was going on. It might turn out that it's completely coincidental, um, but it, it is interesting. I think you mentioned the seeding thing there. Um, Stephen addresses that in the article as well, and uh, he also shows that despite them being, you know, top seed for most of that period, so were Real Madrid, Barcelona, uh, teams like that, and he compares the teams that they faced as well, significantly harder still. So I think it, it, it is interesting. And it's, it's very likely the case, as I think Stephen admits to, to believing himself, that they've just been very, very lucky. Um, but it's still interesting. Yeah, they, they probably have been very, very lucky. I think also one, one thing worth mentioning here for a bit of context is that we know that within UEFA there is an appetite for, within the bigger clubs, the established elite, um, to create historic wildcards. Um, which would guarantee the participation of certain clubs within the Champions League based on what mm-hmm. they've achieved in the past. And so knowing that, it's you, you have to pay attention to these things. You don't have to make accusations off the back of them. You don't have to accuse anybody of any wrongdoing because I don't think that's that's really fair. And, you know, no point to Stephen do that. Um, but it is an anomaly and it's, um, you know, it's certainly one worth pointing out. Uh, number three is uh, Kweko Umunu Quist. His article, uh, What the N'Golo Kante Signing Did for Chelsea, uh, Kweku suggests that Chelsea have a penchant for replacing their legends uh, with near like-for-like players, or at least players capable of, of rivaling their sort of ancestrous greats. Um, Aiden Hazard for Gianfranco Zola or Iron Robin, Drogba for Hasselbank, Aspilicueta for Ferreira, the list goes on. The piece touches on the likeness of Kante and uh, Cloud Makaleli. So, Seb, let me ask you, why is it that, that Kante, who plays in a position that is traditionally woefully underappreciated, why is it that he is universally loved and appreciated? Well, I, I, I think because um, of the erroneous comparison between N'Golo Kante and Cloud Makaleli, I I, you was Makaleli loved like this at the time? Uh, he, probably by Chelsea fans. I think it became, you know, quite rightly, but still fashionably, uh, it, it became sort of fashionable to praise Makaleli because yeah. it was a sort of an appreciation of one of the finer points of the game. Makaleli, if you if you talk to anyone that played in the Real Madrid side with Makaleli before he joined Chelsea, uh, they would all say that the key to their success was him, um, which is quite the compliment given the, the sort of the other players that were in that side. Um, 
and so and and also like I I think um, there, there there are plenty of Frank Lampard interviews in which he he uh, he talks about Makélélé's role at Chelsea. Mm. Um, I don't think there's any comparison really to make between Kanté and Makélélé uh, because Makélélé, uh, vital though he was, was relatively one-dimensional. He his role was very much a, a kind of traditional based on a traditional interpretation of the holding midfield position. Whereas Kanté is not a holding midfield player. That is just one part of his job description. He's actually an extremely active player. He's invaluable to to the counter-attacking phases. He mm. is not a threat from thirty yards in a shooting sense, but he is a he is a, a a part of Chelsea's attacking machinery, as he was at Leicester as well. Um, so I, I I I don't know. I mean, I I think they sort of he is an updated version of Makélélé in the sense that the game has updated its version of Makélélé's role as a whole and. Kante is probably in the Premier League, at least probably probably the uh, uh, the finest example of that. I don't. He's a um, he has many more dimensions than Makélélé did. Or to be fair to Claude Makélélé, he has many more. Um, he is I, I very hard to describe it. He um, Makélélé wasn't a limited player, but he just he was a player who did his role. His role has changed, so we don't know how Makélélé might have performed under current conditions. Is what I'm trying to say. Number four, a piece of archived content re-released for its presumed relevance, uh, written by Robert O'Connor. This article surmises that Henrik Mkhitaryan could be the leader that Bastian Schweinsteiger failed to be at Manchester United. It was written over a year ago, um, so now would seem the appropriate time to address it. Seb, was Rob right? Um, uh, I... <sighs> To be honest, um, I, I didn't actually sub-edit this article at the time. Um, so it's a little what bit... What are you doing? No, I, I don't know, but it, maybe we, uh, maybe it was something that Sam did. I, I, th- I think I must have been off that day, possibly. But I think it's a little bit unfair to, to look back on it now. I don't agree with that. Um, I No, I... I, I, I well, in that case, explain why it's unfair to, to look back now. Because this is, this is a thing that happens, you know, journalists... Uh, and bloggers and whoever write things, and then nine months later, a year later, it, it laughs. Yeah, what, what, what's the problem with that? Why do you deny our laughs? I, I, I deny your laughs because um, I think uh, at the time that Mkhitaryan was signed, um, Manchester United were a, a slightly different uh, proposition to the one they are now. Um, I, I also think that... Um, yeah, I, I think part of the, the Mkhitaryan's appeal and, and part of his importance was that sort of um, he represented a kind of a fluidity at a time when Manchester United were a very static side. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was very easy to see him as a kind of a, a talisman for a new era. Because first, first of all, he's an outstanding player. Of course he is. Um, mm-hmm. But also he's a particular type of footballer. Like if this is a team, for instance, that um, were regularly playing Marin Fellaini in midfield. There is yeah. a, a chasm stylistically between those two players, of course. I think that, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't want to, to say anything which can be interpreted as, as, as a criticism of Rob's article because I, I, you know, it's a very fine article. It's, 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 actually, it's actually very good. I mean, he, he is the assists leader. Absolutely, and he's, um, he, he's, he's proved to be an excellent player. But, I mean, in terms of... A, Central, I think, this season. Yeah, but if you if you add in the emotional aspect, I think it's really unfair of us now, with Manchester United being it's, it's so different to what they were to, to kind of um, to, to 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 analyze what's been written, you know, 
uh, essentially a different point in not a different point in Manchester United's history, but a different point in their in their evolution, should we say? Okay, number five, Seb, you made the list, um, albeit only because I ditched some less relevant bits to get you in. That's very kind of you. <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't in the top five. No. Uh, but you are in our top five. You wrote an article titled, Manchester City, uh, success would be among Guardiola's finest achievements. Explain yourself. Okay, so uh, the premise here is that um, uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the Christmas of Guardiola is always that um, his success at Barcelona was founded on inheriting a group of players that um, were just, you know, belonged in a different stratosphere. Messi, Iniesta, Xavi, Piquet, etc., etc. Um, and he's always been whipped with that. Um, whereas, uh, whereas I, I reject that, I think one of the difference, differences at, um, one of the advantages he did have at, at Camp Nou was that um, a lot of those players in his first team, in what would be considered his first team, um, were grew up on a certain style of football they're all educated in roughly the same way in the same way obviously that Guardiola was too he he came through La Masia like like, uh, like sort of the the, the the current group of um, homegrown players mm-hmm. um, and so whilst he made a lot of adjustments when he when he um, when he was promoted from Barcelona B to, to the first team um, he was essentially preaching to the choir in a way because his style was you know he didn't have to have an, uh, you know a uh, a forensic knowledge of Barcelona's history to recognise Johan Cruyff's influence in it. These are, you know, it was based on that original doctrine. Um, and so, yes, he, he he vastly improved the the levels of fitness in the side. He intensified the speed of their play, and you know, he made all kinds of sort of um, secondary and tertiary changes to to, to the to the environment too. However, at Manchester United, uh, Manchester City, he has obviously has the benefit of, benefit of great talent. He uh, is also the beneficiary of, of huge wealth, of course, and uh, we've seen that this summer. But he to, to, to play the kind of style that we're, we're starting to see in Manchester City's game, to teach that to a group of players who have no shared upbringing. You know, there, there are no common reference points, for instance, between uh, Raheem Sterling and Kevin De Bruyne or between uh, Gabriel Jesus and Sergio Aguero and Bernardo Silva. These are players that have been, they've been players who've been reared in different academies, not under a universal style. And yet, at the moment, it is in its formative stages, um, and we are nowhere close to, to being able to, to herald Manchester City as a future champion or Guardiola as an um, inarguable success in England. However, you're starting to see some kind of um, uh, some parallels between what he did at Barcelona um, in terms mm. of the movement at the top of the field and you know how how well they they're able to to cut through teams. I mean, uh, ten days ago, of course, they went to Manchester City, went to Stamford Bridge, and um, they only won one nil, but they comprehensively outplayed Chelsea. And they, at times, they were wonderful to watch. And the goal they scored to 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 win the game was just an absolute work of art. And I I think yeah. to 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 breathe that level of cohesion is mightily impressive when when you consider the lack of that sort of house style. Um, and I, um, yeah, I, I think it's um, we. It, it's a hard argument to make because we don't have solid proof of what it is. It's just at the moment, you know, we're, we're what eight games into the Premier League season, and um, you know, these yeah. these are really just initial impressions. But I, I think he's covered a lot of ground. I think certainly he's covered a lot of ground between um, last season and this one because you know Manchester City were so flawed last year. They were they were so vulnerable, mm. and you know, I, I think actually in retrospect, it makes the argument. It helps make the argument because I. You know, you, you saw the difficulty um, of 
the Guardiola experience in trying to transplant his beliefs onto that squad. Um, and yes, he has signed a lot of fullbacks for a lot of money and a new goalkeeper, and, and they are they've all been very important. But those attacking players, Bernardo Silva aside, have um, you know were ha- have been there for a year and initially struggled. So you've seen the learning curve that they've had to go through, um, and you've seen sort of um, you know their struggles, and now you're, you're beginning to see sort of what. Yeah, the, the sort of the, the value of Guardiola's teaching. Not related to an answer call, um, but one final word, simply because I spoke to Alex Stewart about this the other day. Uh, what do you think about Leroy Sana? I think he's uh, uh, very, very entertaining to watch. Oh, he's a wonderful player. He, he's uh, just the aesthetic is great. He, he, he kind of floats across the grass. Mm. I, it's like he doesn't even touch the ground. He's um, he's uh, so elegant, and uh, also what's most interesting about him is that. Uh, you know, he um, there is nowhere near the, the sort of the summit of his potential. Um, his career's yeah. apex will probably come in three or four years' time, and can you imagine what he would be by then? I mean, once he's added kind of uh, a little bit more composure when he's when he's in front of goal, and when he's developed you know a further layer of chemistry with his teammates, I mean, he could be anything he wants to be. Delightful stuff, um, Seb. Thanks very much for joining us, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Mm-hmm.